Let's hear now the word of the Lord together from Psalm 30. A psalm of David. A song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to go to your word, knowing that you are a God that condescends to speak to sinners like us and communicate your gospel, your grace, through your word. Father, we give thanks for the many ways that your word reveals the wickedness in our hearts. Pray, God, that your, your spirit would work to illumine our minds, to convict us of sin, to lead us to repentance, to change, to rejoicing. Father, we pray that you would be honored as you deserve this morning, as your people rejoice and give thanks for your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I was doing some spring cleaning recently, and I actually came across a little treasure. Um, this is a handout from the very first session of the first membership class at Sovereign Grace. I don't even know why I kept it, but I had it in my files, which was kind of amazing, all the way back from 2006, which is kind of crazy. Uh, membership was a little different back then. You may know, I believe that we met once a week on Thursdays for like six months. So it's been shrunk down quite a bit. Um, and judging by the first session, which is five pages long, um, it was a bit intense. So if you've gone through membership lately, you can be thankful for that. It's taken 14 years, but we got it down to three sessions. So that's a good thing too. Well, as I found that, I was just thinking about all the first things at Sovereign Grace and the way back when all these things that have happened. And I was just reflecting on all that God has done and all the changes that have been made. Just thinking about, remember when Chad used to preach in shorts and Hawaiian shirt, um, which is, I should bring that back occasionally. Um, there are so many more kids now 
So many more kids, and we thank God for that. The, when the youth group started in my living room, there was an average of six kids for the junior high and the high school. And I'm pretty sure half of our high school students belonged to the Stevens. So that was a big, big deal back then too. But the many things that have changed over the years that I was reflecting on, I'm very thankful that one thing in particular hasn't changed. And I hope will never change. And that's our church practice of taking time to reflect on the evidence of God's grace in our life. We've had this practice since the beginning, and we, um, it's become such a part of the culture here at the church, which I'm so thankful for, because I love it. I love that it was when we meet with grace groups and staff meetings and Christmas parties, we intentionally stop and we look around, we look away from ourselves to reflect on all that God is doing around us to take stock of what's going on, to see the evidence of God's grace and rejoice in it. can't tell you how many times I've come into grace group or meetings with, with a heavy heart or just distracted. And for a moment, taking my eyes off of myself and my life and pointing them to the grace of God all around me just lifts my spirits, encourages me tremendously. And I started thinking, well, Evidence of grace is such a blessing on difficult days. What about good days? What about days when it's easy to see the grace of God? Days of blessing, days of celebration. Is it good and important to rejoice in God's grace then as well? Well, As I studied this psalm and I studied through Scripture this week, I was convinced that the Bible actually teaches us that recognizing the evidence of grace, the evidence of God's grace in our life, is just as important, if not more important, on good days as it is rough days. Because there are so many stories in Scripture of the people of God being blessed by God. But then they take that blessing and they actually begin to forget who the source of that blessing is. They even go as far as they start taking credit for that blessing. They start believing that, you know what, I've earned this. I I deserve this. This blessing has come because of the work of my hands. My intelligence, my abilities, my giftingness have brought this into my life. And they even start to believe, you know what, God? You can take the day off. I've got it from here. Your grace got me to this point, but I can take it from here, Lord. I can handle this on my own. The same lie we've been believing since the garden, isn't it? You see, good days, days to celebrate, are a blessing. But we have to be careful because on days of celebration, we get so tempted to celebrate ourselves and forget the God who gave us grace. Sadly, most of the stories in the Bible where we see that happen end in horrible tragedy. David has one of those stories. And by God's grace, it did not end in tragedy. He was saved graciously from the consequences of his pride. And he wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 30. So that's what we're studying this morning, David's recognition of looking to the evidence of God's grace. But before we do that, let's get into some background. And we see that in the superscript. So look at the superscript with me. It gives us a little bit of information of what we're dealing with here. So it says, a psalm of David. A psalm of David, King David. So this is about David and his experience, like most of the psalms we've had. This is not a lament. I know we've had a lot of those lately, but this is actually a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise, which usually follows those laments. 
When God shows up and delivers his people, God's people respond in praise and thanksgiving. And that's what we see here with this psalm. And like most of the other psalms we've studied, we don't actually know when this took place. Scholars kind of go crazy and try to find all the details in the passage to, to line it up to parts of David's life, but we really just don't know. There's not one circumstance in his life where this fits perfectly. That's a really good thing because then we can apply it to our lives and our circumstances in all kinds of different places. But you notice in the superscript there's something kind of strange. We don't know when this psalm was written, but we actually know why this psalm was written. We actually get the purpose, the goal of David writing the psalm. Look at what it says. It says a song at the dedication of the temple. I know that sounds really straightforward, and in some ways it can be, but that last word in Hebrew is actually the word for house, the dedication of the house. And so what does that mean? I mean, some scholars go and say, well, that's, that's got to be the house of David, right? The palace. David dedicates his house, and many of the Jews back then would do that. They would dedicate their home to the Lord. David certainly did that, but we don't have any record that he read this psalm at that point. Well, some believe, well, maybe it was an Absalom died. And David moved back into the palace. And then there was definitely this clear period of rejoicing and renewal. That's where the psalm would apply. And then some scholars say, you know what? It's not really the house of David. It's the house of the Lord. The temple, right? That's what it says. Problem with that is David died before the temple was ever built. So he wrote this maybe prophetically for that great day, but we don't know if Solomon read this or not, or maybe he wrote it for the tabernacle, or maybe he even wrote it for when the people of God came back to the promised land in the book of Ezra, in the time of Ezra, right? The problem is we don't know exactly where this psalm was used. After studying this psalm, this passage, I believe it's, it's about so much more than just a building. This psalm is about the household of David, the people of God. It's a dedication of God's work among his people to recognize the grace among God's people. And I'll show you that through this psalm as we get going. But right now I need to remember, David wrote this for a very important day. A day of celebration. Which is weird because it's a very personal psalm. He confesses sin. He acknowledges his guilt in front of everybody. The kind of stuff that that we don't want to even do in prayer groups, right? He exposes it all to the church, the people of God, so that they might rejoice in the salvation given to David. And so they might also see the grace of their God in their life. I need to know one more thing before we dive in. This psalm is actually in a chiastic structure. We've dealt with this in the past, but key is the the Greek letter that kind of looks like an X. It's not an X, but it looks like one. And the psalm is kind of set up that way where things that are said in verse 1 are kind of repeated in a similar way in verse 10 or 12, right? The beginning and the end repeat in this parallel idea. And it all leads towards the middle, right? X marks the spot. That's the idea. And so the middle is kind of the point of the whole psalm. And so what that does for us is we are actually going to start in the middle. We're going to start in the middle and work our way outward, which will feel a little weird, but I hope I promise it'll make sense as we walk through, okay? So we are going to start in verses 6 and 7. We are going to look at the forgotten grace. The forgotten grace. Then we'll look at the verses right outside of that in 8 through 10 and then the beginning at the recognized grace. And then we'll look at the end and the beginning of the passage for the remembered grace. And that essentially is what this psalm is about. Remember the grace of God. 
Remember the grace of God on good days or bad days, especially in Christ. And that's what David is going to show us this morning. So as we get to verse 6, you might have noticed as we read through, verse 1 and verse 3 show us that David's going through some difficult times, right? There's enemies that are out to get him. He's sick to the point of death. But these physical problems are just symptoms of something so much greater going on in his heart. He has a spiritual problem of pride that's just destroying him from the inside out. And that's what we see as he describes how he forgot God's grace in verse 6. Read that with me. As for me, David, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. David is reflecting on this period in his life where he's blessed. He's favored by God. Where He's not on the run for once in his life. Where his people are cared for. His people are provided for. There's peace in the land. Times are good for David. Have you ever had times like that? I know they can be hard to come by, but when you're thinking, man, my job is just perfect. This is going so well. My family's getting along. We're, we're all healthy for once. Times are good. I'm provided for. We have even more than we need. We can be in just the same situation, David. Times are good. God is blessed. And you see, the danger in moments like that is we can actually assume that we are safe. We can actually start to say, like David, I shall never be moved. That my mountain is strong. That I've taken care of all the threats outside of me and I'm fortified. I'm on my mountain, I'm safe, I'm protected, I am my refuge. What could possibly happen to me? Famous last words, right? I'm sure some of us have even said those things before. You know, I was a teacher for 11 years in Christian school, in public school, and even in the homeschool world for a little while. During that time, we talked a lot about safety, a lot about safety. We always talked about creating a safe atmosphere and a safe environment, especially in the homeschool and the Christian school world. Talked about how we wanted to have an environment where kids were unaffected by the world and where they get to praise God in class. And there's something to that, isn't there? The blessing of having the chance to talk about the gospel, to talk about the creator of the very things we're studying. But a lot of times in those environments, that's not where we went with safety. Say, well, I'm so glad we're so protected from all those pagan kids and in public school, all those evil, ungodly teachers that are trying to draw your kids away, which always made me laugh because I was one of those at one point. And I know many of you are a light in that dark place, and I thank God for you. Thank God for your work in those places. You know, when I had parents come to me and say, you know, I'm so thankful that this school is a safe place, that we're protected, that my kids are in a good environment, and they're safe from the world around us. I always wanted to say, well, who's going to protect your kids from you? Who's going to protect them from your evil, unbelieving heart? Better yet, who's going to protect them from themselves? So I'm pretty sure that same evil, unbelieving heart is in them too. And that evil, unbelieving heart is going to believe that, you know what, all of our threats are outside of us. I'm safe. I'm secure. I've taken care of everything around me, so I'm good. I don't have to worry about the enemy from within. And then our evil heart begins to whisper to us in this moment that, you know what, you're okay. You've accomplished this. You've earned this. 
You have peace and prosperity because of the work of your hands. And you can forget God's grace. Moses warned his people against this in Deuteronomy 8. You don't have to turn there, but before they went into the promised land, Moses, Moses warned them, when you get there and God blesses, you're going to be tempted to walk away. You'll be tempted to worship false gods. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. The people of God have been warned over and over again, don't forget. You realize how much that is commanded in Scripture? So many times, especially in the book of Hebrews that we studied, right? Don't forget. Keep going. Remember. Just blows me away how much of the Christian faith is just remembering the grace that you have. Even in the Lord's Supper, it blows me away that Jesus didn't say, here, look, take the bread, take the cup, do this, do a couple times, and then you'll get the hang of it, you'll get the point, and then you can move on. He says, take the, bre- the cup, the bread, do this as often as you get together. Do this until I return. What's the implication there? We're forgetful people. We're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. And so what does God do with his forgetful, wayward people? What does he do with David? Well, he disciplines David. He disciplines him, which is a further act of grace and love. Look at verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. And listen to this. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David thought he could never be moved, and God moved him. He thought he was strong, and God humbled him. God woke him up. God disciplined him, reminded him that all he had was from God, that it was all grace from start to finish. And David was dismayed. He was undone. I hope you recognize this is covenant language here, right? God hiding his face, just an echo of the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the amazing thing is David had that. He had the blessing of God, the favor of God. And when David turned his face away, the father turned his face away from David. And his life literally fell apart. His kingdom, his health, His struggles, they they all just melted away like a castle in the sand. His life literally collapsed. He became ill to the point of death. It's for sure that he was going to to the grave. And his enemies started to rejoice and say, you know what? This is great news. Our enemy's finally going to die. He's going to get what he deserves. And David is aware that his difficulty, his struggle, is as a result of the sin. It's a result. It's an act of God's discipline in his life. Now, we have to be careful 
because we can start to look around and try to be um, in a detective and try to figure out, okay, which of these sins did I, did I do that caused this difficulty in my life? Jesus warned us against that. When the disciples went to the blind man and said, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born, born blind? And Jesus basically said, that's not how it works. But there are times when God's discipline does show up in suffering, doesn't it? Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 11 that some people have died in Corinth. Some people are sick because they were abusing the Lord's table. So suffering, if difficulty comes in your life, don't try to try to figure out what God's trying to teach you. If there's sin in your life, repent. Repent, turn to the Lord. And that's exactly what David does. He realizes he forgot God's grace, and he starts recognizing God's grace. And that's what we see in verse 8. Forgotten grace to recognize grace in verse 8 as he repents. Verse 8 says, To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. Do you see what a changed man David is? This man who boasted in his strength is now broken and desperate and weak. He cries to the Lord for mercy. He cries out for grace, the very grace that he had and he forgot about. Oh, we have to see this as an incredible act of grace in David's life. Because David would have continued in his pride. He would have continued to his own destruction had God not reached into his life and woke him up. Had God not turned his face away. I know it can be so easy to assume that God's discipline in our life is just a curse. But Hebrews 12 teaches us that we shouldn't despise God's discipline. That God disciplines those he loves. Like a good father showing us the consequences of our sin. Showing us where our sin would lead if we're left to that. This is an evidence of God's grace that David didn't deserve. And frankly, we don't deserve. You know, when people come to me and they, they start confessing sin or they start talking about their struggle, one of the first things I try to do is to say, let's praise God together. Let's thank God right now which throws them off, and they always look at me like I'm nuts, but it's, it's this evidence of God's grace that he's working, that God didn't leave us comfortable in our sin. He didn't turn us over to our own wickedness, and he's waking us up through his discipline, and the struggles are signs of life, that God is disciplining and God is at work. It's an evidence of grace in our life. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Repent. Cry out to God. And that's what David continues to do in verse 9. Verse 9, he says this. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, that's the grave, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Well, it sounds like a weird argument, almost as if David is trying to cut a deal with the Lord, right? Heard those before, maybe you've made those before. Lord, if you get me out of this, I will do whatever you want. I, I, will, I will be nicer. I will go anywhere in the world. Just get me out of this. Sounds like what David's saying, right? Lord, save my life. If, if I'm alive, then I can praise you more. It's not completely what David's going for here. Look at verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Well, I hope you recognize language like that especially as we've been going through the Psalms. He uses this covenant name of God again, right? 
Yahweh, which Chad talked about last week. It's a beautiful description of all that God is. He's the God majestic and holy and great and transcendent, but also the God who's close to us, the God who's eminent, cares for his people, keeps his covenant, the God who is great and the God who is good. And David calls out to this covenant God and calls him his helper. The same thing we heard in in Psalm 28, the same kind of language in Psalm 23, so many of the other ones before. Lord, be my helper, be my refuge, be my shepherd. And verse 9 is really interesting when he says, will it tell of your faithfulness? It's almost as if David is saying, look, Lord, if you don't save me, it's going to look like you're unfaithful. My death will look bad to your enemies. It will look like you've forgotten me. This is where we need to bring the superscript back in to understand this a little more. Do you remember what the superscript said? This is a song for what? The dedication of the temple, the house. This is actually the dedication of the house of David, the household of God. David is pleading on the covenant made with him. In fact, let's turn there. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Keep your finger in Psalm 30. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. So look at the covenant that David is, is pleading God to fulfill. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Actually, in verses 1 through 3, David is, is recognizing that God doesn't have a house. The people of God have been moving around. God's dwelt in a tent, and so he wants to build God a house. And then Nathan comes back and says, David, that's not for you to do. Plus, if you build me a house, it's not going to be worthy of me, right? You can't do this, David. And so God turns it around, and he gives David these promises, and basically God says, I'm going to build you into a house. Look what he says, verse 8, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people of Israel. Talk about an evidence of grace. Brought out of the fields to lead God's people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you, so I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent man shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see what God's doing? David, you don't make my house. I make my house. I'm going to build your household. And I'm going to do it through your offspring. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
But my steadfast love, depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We know that Solomon came after David and and built the temple for the Lord. But Solomon died. That temple fell apart. Even God's people after exile came back to the promised land, built the temple again, but it got destroyed again. So where is this eternal temple? Where is this eternal house? And then we go to the New Testament. And Jesus shows up on the scene as this promised son of David, the one who's going to fulfill all the promises given to God's people. And he comes on the scene and he says, destroy this temple. Destroy this body. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Telling all God's people, I am God's house. I am the household of David. I'm the one that was promised from long ago. And that's why Paul says later in Ephesians 2 that we too are part of that temple as we're brought into the family of God. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. But we are being built into a house, a temple of God. The temple of God to worship God. Oh, David didn't know all these details. He looked ahead through the shadows to see the promises of God fulfilled. But David is begging here in Psalm 30 on the promises of God. Saying, be faithful, Lord, to your covenant. Don't let your house fall apart. Save me. Save your household. Lord, save your temple. Save your people. And what does God do? Back in Psalm 30, he gives David more grace. This prideful king, this arrogant man, he gives him more grace and he heals him. Look at verse 1. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. These beautiful verses are a picture of, of the deliverance of David. He said that God drew him up in verse 1, right? This, this is a picture of, of throwing a bucket down a well and then drawing it out to receive water. And David's saying, I've been cast into the well. I've been cast into the pit. Did you catch that? I've been cast into the grave, the land of the dead to Sheol. My soul was down there. I was in trouble. I had zero hope. But God, you drew me out of it. You brought me back. You healed me, verse 2. You restored my life, verse 3. You didn't let my enemies rejoice over me. By your grace, you spared me. You kept your covenant. Oh, this is almost literally a resurrection for David. Got about as close as you could possibly get, and God raised him from the, the shadow of death. Raised God's people, the household of David, in this resurrection-like event. Oh, I hope you can see where I'm going from this. Because as great as God's deliverance from David was, there's a much bigger resurrection at work here, isn't there? David's experience of kingly failure points us to a need for a greater king to come. A greater king who would never forget God's grace. 
who would never be lifted up in sinful pride, who would never have to experience the discipline of God, who would never take his eyes off the Lord and forget his grace. And this king would come in the place of the proud, in the place of the guilty. This king would go down to the pit, go down to the grave, the land of Sheol. He would walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He would have the Father's face turn from him so that he can be the helper of his people. So he can go into the grave for his people. And this king would raise from the dead literally. He would get far closer than David because he would actually die and raise from the dead on the third day. And all that would be united to him by faith would also be risen up. Lifted from their sin and their rebellion. Lifted from their arrogance and their foolishness. And they would be resurrected with this king. This Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the biggest, biggest evidence of grace that we have. The evidence of grace that we need to remember day after day that God resurrected his church in Christ. Resurrected his people. And we can actually pray like David in these verses. We can say things like this. Oh Lord Jesus, you have drawn me out of the grave. You have not let Satan rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help in Christ, and you have healed me of my sin and rebellion and pride. O Lord, you have resurrected me from the dead in Christ, as you caused me to be born again to a living hope when Jesus walked out of that grave. Brothers and sisters, this is the evidence of grace that we can never forget. We can never forget. How do we make sure that we never, never forget that? Well, David will help us with that too. David learned his lesson and he wants to show the people of God how to remember God's grace. Now that he's recognized God's grace, there are three applications I want to point out that David shows us how we can remember God's grace, how we can fight this battle with pride that David found himself in. And the first is that we need to remember God's grace continually, regularly. Look back at verse 1 with me. We already read this part, but look at the first part again. I will extol you, O Lord. I will extol you, O Lord. This language there is actually, I will, I will lift you up. And it's this picture of David who's been lifted from the grave, who's been lifted from his sin, saying, now that I've been lifted up, I'm going to praise the God who lifted me up. I'm going to lift up the God of grace, the God of goodness. I'm going to praise him all my days. And the word here actually has a continuous sense to it. I'm going to keep on lifting you up. I'm going to continue to lift you up. It's almost as if David's saying, look, I've learned my lesson. I will not turn my face away from you again. I will not forget your grace. I will remember your grace every second of every day by lifting you up in praise and worship all the days of my life. Well, silence is not an option for those who have been resurrected. It's not an option. David shows us that here. So my question to you, is your life constantly filled with praise and thanksgiving to God who resurrected you by his grace? I know it doesn't mean that you have to be this kind of bubbly, joyful personality like a, like a motivational speaker who's always pumping sunshine and getting everybody excited and pumped up. Or you have to have this kind of Pollyannish view of the world where it's just everything's fine, the sun will come out, right? Everything is awesome. Lego theology kind of thing, right? It's not what we're talking about here. 
God's people can lift him up through tears, especially through tears. God's people can praise God on good days and bad days, on days of joy and days of sadness, through repentance and through thankfulness. So the bottom line question is, do you fight to recognize the evidence of God's grace continually in your life? Do you fight your pride knowing that you need God's grace minute by minute, day by day? Do you fight to see God's grace continually? One of the best ways we can do that is the second application, which is we need to remember God's grace corporately. We need to remember God's grace corporately. Look at verse 5 with me. Love this verse. Look what David says. Sing praises to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. O you, his saints, his beloved, his covenant people. Did you notice the shift? After David repents, he praises God. He goes from an individual praise now to the corporate praise. He goes from himself to all the people of God. And what does he want the people of God to do, the saints? Verse 4, give thanks. Give thanks to his holy name. This is not the same David. This is not the David that was concerned about his name and his kingdom and and the stability of his people. David has experienced this wonderful self-forgetfulness that I believe comes to all the people of God when they're blown away by the grace of God. When they see the glory of God in the face of Christ and the world just begins to fade away. And when David realizes all that God has done, he's realizing, oh, wait a minute. My voice isn't enough. It's that, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing moment. I'm not enough to do this. I need more people, more people praising this God. So all you, his saints, come in, join me in praise. Join me in lifting up the God of grace that hasn't just saved me, but saved you. Saved all of God's people through his king. Well, so much important things to learn about evidence of grace here. Did you know evidence of grace is not primarily for you? It's not. It's for all of God's people. It's for all of God's people. And your struggle, your celebration is meant to be shared with the people of God. I believe that's what um, Romans has in mind, what Paul had in mind when he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Recognize God's God's work in rejoicing and weeping and join and fight together. Fight to recognize God's grace together. Because you know what? There are times when people will see grace in you that you don't see yourself. People will recognize God's work and say, I thank God for the way that God's working in your life. For the kind of parents you are. For the kind of friend you are. For all that God's doing in your life. And you can think, I would have never noticed that in the world. And you can rejoice in something that you didn't point out. And that can be flipped around as well, right? You can notice the evidence of grace in somebody and encourage them. And the crazy thing is you can actually be encouraged yourself. You can be in the dark night of the soul and look around and think, I don't see evidence of God's grace anywhere in me, but I see it in them. And I remember that God is faithful to work through his people. And so I can be patient. I can wait on the Lord because he's faithful to his people and he will be faithful to me. Oh, this is why we can't neglect to come together to recognize the evidence of grace. We can't neglect to meet together, as Hebrews says. Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Oh, I know there's a million things that can draw our attention away. There's a million things that can draw us away from the people of God every single week on Sundays and and throughout the week. But don't forget how easy it is to forget. How easy it is to trust in our own strength, our own abilities. How easy it is to take confidence in ourselves and to walk away from God. We need this fight together. We need the church and the church needs you. And your kids need you as well to do this in front of them. I was just blown away by this quote from Kevin DeYoung. It was in a book called A Hole in Our Holiness. We talked about how, how desperately we need the church. Listen to what he says here. Those serious about communion with Christ must be diligent to share in fellowship with other Christians. In more than a decade of pastoral ministry, I've never met a Christian who was healthier, more mature, and more active in ministry by being apart from the church. But I have found it the opposite to be invariably true. The weakest Christians are those least connected to the body. And the less involved you are, the more disconnected those that follow you will be. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize the evidence of God's grace continually and corporately. What I love about David is he doesn't just command us to do this. He leads the way. Look at verse 5. As David rejoices in God's grace to lead the praise and worship service. For his anger, his discipline, his wrath, it's but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Oh, this glorious truth. What a blessing it is to those that are in Christ. But you need to know that this is not true for those that have not trusted in Christ for forgiveness. In fact, it's just the opposite. That the common grace you experience in this life is as good as it gets. It's a temporary thing. And his wrath will be for eternity. For the non-Christian, this is their best life now. But not for God's people. God's favor will continue for eternity. Weeping, verse 5 in the middle. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Oh, this is a picture of a house guest who, who stays over for the night, but has gone in the morning. David's saying, weeping is something that's temporary. It's like it just stays overnight. But in the morning... Joy settles in for good. I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes. It feels like the weeping will just continue forever. That the night will never end. The promise of God's word is that it's just temporary. The struggles and difficulties in this life are producing an eternal weight of glory in Christ. And look at verse 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth, my, my garments of mourning, and you've given me other garments. Clothe me with gladness that my glory, this is a, a picture of all of David, my body, my soul, my whole being may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. 
Brothers and sisters, this is where it's headed. We will rejoice in God's evidence of grace for all of eternity. We do that now continually. We do that now corporately in the weeping, the sickness, the difficulty, knowing that joy will come in the morning, on that great resurrection morning when every tear will be wiped away and we will see our Savior and rejoice in God's grace forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful song. Thank you for afflicting David for our sake. Showing your redemption through David. That would show an even greater redemption in Christ. Father, we thank you for sending your son to live the life that we failed to live. To go to the cross and pay for the sin that we deserve. The wrath of God that we deserve. And to rise from the dead so that we might have newness of life. Father, we praise you as your blood-bought, resurrected people. And we give thanks to you. Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us to praise you and rejoice in your grace continually together and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.